it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Um, hey, you guys. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Killer Queens. I know. Here we are. Here Just we are. Being some two queens. <laughs> Hello, two queens. All right. So, obviously, we have a super heavy case today. It's a rough one. Yeah. And... I don't know. I feel like it's a big one. I always am very, very surprised when we have a ton of people request a case that I feel like has been done by every single other person. Yeah, because we just have the mindset of like, well, who wants to hear that again? Exactly. But we do have some people that want to hear it. So A lot of people. Let's go ahead and get into it. Yeah. So this is requested by Rory Madden, Cheyenne, Sile Hadley. Kayla Anderson, R.K. Jordan, Christy Rogers, Diane Vineyard, Kimberlyn Escobedo, Michaela Smith, Mandy Revis, hey girl, hey, Katie Marie Connor, Amanda Cunningham, Cheyenne Eldridge, Ari, and Caroline. Wow. So thanks, guys. Yeah. The way we get these, we can thank you for requesting it, is if you use our case submission form. Yes. So if you send like a random message somewhere, I mean, we may not see it. So the only way to for sure get on the case suggestion list and we can take down all your information is our case submission form. It's like killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. Yeah. And of course, we have to thank Mark for writing it up. 100%. Yes. So the trigger warnings that we have for this episode are murder of children, mentions of dismemberment and sexual assault of children, mutilation of bodies, and satanic cults. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so the description of this episode, in case you're not familiar, on May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys were reported missing by their parents. An initial search that night did not find the boys, but the following day, a more thorough search of areas that the boys were known to play and hang out was carried out, and the bodies of Stevie Branch, Chris Byers, and Michael Moore were discovered. With very little actual evidence, I would almost say none, mm-hmm. three teens were arrested and found guilty of the murders. They spent years in prison before being released and are still fighting to this day to clear their names. The state of Arkansas refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing, of course, and lets the true killers or killer walk free. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, guys, before we jump into today's case, we just want to let you know that we've got lots more content over on our Patreon. And if you don't know what Patreon is, it's just a service that lets you get 
basically extra content, but you also get to provide monthly financial support to creators like your favorite podcasters. There's artists on there. There's musicians on there. There's like all kinds of stuff, but it basically helps us keep the lights on and also give you extra content. Yes. And tomorrow on our Patreon, we have our murder mixtape and we're covering the case of Chris Benoit. He was a WWE wrestler and he did some really, really messed up things. So you don't want to miss that one for sure. Yeah. And we learned a lot about wrestling in that episode. I was very surprised at yeah. a lot of stuff. I just, I was never into it. So I was just really, uh, really surprised by a lot of it. It's interesting. It's a hell of a sport. I'll tell you that. It, yeah, really is. Unfortunately, some people like him give it a bad name. Exactly. And then on Friday, we drop our fourth installment of the current docu-series we're covering on our show called Doc Jams on Patreon. So right now we're in the middle of Heist, which tells the stories of ordinary people who almost got away with extraordinary heists. And this week is part two of The Money Plane. So <laughs> last week, this guy Carl's and his friends decide that they're going to rob this like big plane. And so they end up doing this. And then Going off the rails doesn't even begin to describe what happened after this. No. There are multiple kidnappings. Yeah, some happening, well, one guy getting kidnapped multiple times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like, again, like, truth is stranger than fiction. You have to check it out. It's it's a really wild series. Oh, yes. And, of course, Sunday, we drop our weekly catch-up episode, which we lovingly call Tita the fourth power Y, it's time to talk to you. We also refer to it as our titty. Mm-hmm. Cause if you spell it out, it looks exactly like titty. Yep. And we just gab about life. We talk about whatever we are thinking, whatever we've done, whatever we've been watching, what our favorite salad dressing is. Like the list goes on and on and it's super fun. Exactly. So head to patreon.com slash killer queens pod to join in on all the fun. And when you join, you don't just get the episodes that we're dropping this week. You get every episode we've ever released on the Patreon. So you've got like, hundreds of episodes ready to binge and listen to right this second. I would say millions. (laughs) Um, I shouldn't. That is false advertising. Yeah, I should not say millions. No, okay. Yeah, yeah. You could, but but you shouldn't. Right. Yeah. And if you want to be sure to never miss an episode, join our email list. So you can visit killerqueens.link slash email to join the list and be the first to know about all the fun happenings. That email list is, or the emails that we get or you get every week, amazing. Everybody loves them. They are so good. We have so much fun stuff in there. Like we'll share Tori's 90s hauls. Like she'll buy something and we'll share it on there. Or there's like on this day and this year. I mean, it's just like a lot of really fun stuff and case updates, all kinds Mm -hmm. of stuff. Absolutely. So Trello, let's get on to the case. All right, let's do it. So this case can be divisive. I mean, some people think that no matter what, the three people who were put in prison were the ones who actually did it. And some people don't see how police can convince or persuade someone to give a false confession. There is literally so much to this case. Several documentaries, books. I mean, my gosh, the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And what we have used, Mark specifically, has used for the notes on this is The Devil's Knot by Mara Leverett and the documentary West of Memphis as sources for this case. So both of those do an amazing job of covering it with many different angles. So that's why it creates a complete picture, mm-hmm. hopefully, of the case. 
But before we get into the case, we have to look at Stevie Branch, Chris Byers, and Michael Moore. So Stephen, most commonly called Stevie by his friends and family, was born in November of 1984, and he was in the second grade at Weaver Family. Weaver Family? What was I going to... Why? I I cannot tell you why. It was... Tell he was me in, why. I know. I don't... And we can't do it. I, I don't know. I don't it. know. Uh, he was in the second grade at Weaver Elementary. His teacher said that he was overall a great student. He was liked by all his classmates. His father, Stephen, and mother, Pam, weren't together anymore. And Stevie had a stepfather, Terry Hobbs. Remember that name? Terry was the biological father to Stevie's younger sister, Amanda. And Stevie was easily recognizable by everyone because he had striking blonde hair and he was always in a good mood. Everyone said that he had such a friendly demeanor and personality. So one of Stevie's friends was Christopher, who goes by Chris, or went by Chris, excuse me, Byers. Chris was born in June of 1984, and he lived with his mother, Melissa, and stepfather, Mike By- Mark Byers. Good God in heaven. Chris had an older half-brother, Ryan, and Chris was also a second grader at Weaver Elementary along with Stevie. He had recently befriended Stevie and the third victim, Michael Moore, and Chris had been experiencing what some doctors described as quote, problems as a result of hyperactivity disorder. Mm -hmm. He was on medication for this, but the doctors said that they were unable to determine why his hyperactivity and behavior weren't weren't improving with the medication. Chris loved hanging out with his friends. He loved riding bikes, typical eight-year-old stuff. Michael Moore is the third victim in the Robin Hood Hills murders. Mike was born in July of 1984 to Diane and Todd Moore. He had an older sister named Dawn. Mike was also a second grader at Weaver Elementary with Chris and Stevie. And even at such a young age, people said that Mike was a born leader. He was active in the Cub Scouts in the West Memphis area. He loved playing with his friends. He pretended to be a police officer when they were all playing together. Like, he just loved that kind of stuff. On May 5th, Stevie's mom picked him up from school and they walked home with his younger sister, Amanda. Pam recalled that on that walk home, Stevie was much more affectionate than he usually was. He was telling her multiple times that he loved her. Mm. That's the saddest thing. On, on Like she has to relish those memories. Yeah. And it was almost like he, for him to do that kind of out of the blue or not, it wasn't typical of him. It's like, did on some level, did he know? Like, uh, uh. Mm-hmm. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. 
no matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. So that evening, Pam had to be at work at 5 p.m. for the local restaurant. She worked night shift. And between 3 and 3, 10 p.m. after the family had arrived home, there was a knock at the door and it was Michael Moore. He had raced over so the boys could ride their bikes together. And the weather hadn't been great for the past few days in that area, but they finally that day had a really nice day. And Stevie had just gotten a new bike by his grandfather and they all wanted to get out and enjoy the good weather. And at first Pam was like, no, you're not going. I have to leave for work in a little bit. No. But the boys, of course, when you're little, you're like, please, 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 please. So Pam finally agreed and told Stevie to be back home at 4.30 when his stepfather, Terry, would be there to take her to work. And the boys were like, of course we will. Love it. See you later. Go kick rocks. We're going to go play. Mm -hmm. So they set off on their bikes. Around 3.30, there was another knock at the door. And standing there when Pam opened it was Chris Byers. And Chris was looking for Stevie, but Pam told him that the other two boys had left not that long ago. So Chris stayed at the house until 4 p.m. And he sat and watched an episode of Muppet Babies, which I fucking loved Muppet Babies. Oh my God. It's also just so, just puts into perspective how young they are. Mm -hmm. That like he's, he's sitting there watching Muppet Babies with Stevie's little sister. I know. It's just so I mean, sad. Element, third grade, elementary school. Come yeah. on. He left and an, eye, an eyewitness account say that he was seen with the other two boys riding bikes around town. Then at 5.30 p.m., Mark Byers, Chris's stepdad, was out looking for him when he found Chris going down the middle of North 14th Street on his belly on a skateboard. <laughs> Mark took Chris home and spanked him before telling him to clean up the family's carport. Shortly after Mark left while Chris was cleaning to pick up his other son, Ryan, from court, Ryan had been testifying in the court in a reckless driving case. So Melissa Byer said that the last time she saw Chris was around 5.45 p.m. He was outside cleaning still and had come in and out of the house a few times. Several sightings of the boys after then indicate that Chris met back up with Stevie and Michael. Around 7 p.m., Chris Wall said that he saw the two boys on their bikes riding towards Robin Hood Hills. He had just gotten out of his night school classes and it was beginning to get dark. Besides their killer, Chris seems to be the last one to have seen them alive. And he was questioned about his involvement in the case and given a polygraph, which didn't indicate any deception. Well, thank God, because they don't need much to charge you with these boys' murders. So with him I being the last one to see him, I know. Polygraph. Well, we'll get into why, but yeah. yeah. Brian Woody was the last known person to have seen Mike Moore, although it had has been questioned since he was in a vehicle driving and he was pretty far from where he claimed to have seen him. When Stevie didn't return home by 4.30, he was told, as he was told, Pam told her husband to just take her to work. So Terry dropped her off and then he went back home. He arrived back later that night, a little after nine to pick Pam up and he went in to use the phone and Pam went out to the car where Amanda was the only one in the car. So she asked Amanda where Stevie was and Amanda said that they couldn't find him. So they raced back home, Pam changed clothes, and they started to search for Stevie. And the boys were reported missing and search parties were formed, but nothing was found during that night. Like, how pissed are you at your husband right now that he comes to pick you up at nine o'clock and you're like, where the fuck is Stevie? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Well, and this is not 
the 1600s. They had phones. Uh-huh. He could have called her and been like, hey, I can't find Steve. Hey, he never came home. Did you yeah. did you send him somewhere and I forgot? Well, or And the fact that he, he came and got Pam. He went into her place of business to use the phone. <laughs> Didn't say a fucking word about, hey. No, no word. She just gets to the car and is like, he's not, no, both of my kids are not here. Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. So again, put a pin in that. Mm-hmm. The next day, people started searching again. Steve Jones, a former Crittenden... Ooh. <laughs> That's a tough one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Crittenden County juvenile officer was one of the first people searching. And he was out driving and looking for the boys on their bikes. And as he drove near Robin Hood Hills, he thought that it was worth a shot to get out and look around there. The area was kind of known for being an area where kids would go and play, run around, just being kids. So he walked around for a little bit and he came to a drainage ditch and saw a black tennis shoe floating. So he immediately called into dispatch and had an officer meet him. He showed Officer Mike Allen the area and Mike went to get the shoe out. And this was around 1.45 p.m. on May 6th. So as Mike was trying to get the shoe out, he accidentally falls in the water. Sounds awful. Hate that for him, but thank God he did, Mm -hmm. right? Because... He looks at Steve Jones in the moment and he was like, I feel like there's, my leg is caught on something. It might be a log, but I don't know. And he falls backwards. And while he falls backwards, his leg dislodged what it was stuck on. And unfortunately, it was one of the three boys' bodies. Mm. They immediately closed off the area. They began searching and they found the bodies of Stevie and Chris near each other submerged in the water of the drainage ditch. And a little further north, also submerged in uh, the water was the body of Mike Moore. And all three boys had been hogtied in a peculiar way. Their right wrists were tied behind their backs to their right ankle with shoelaces and the same for the left wrist and ankle. So they were tied with shoelaces, but like one foot to one hand, the other foot to the other hand. Throughout the creek, police found the boys close. And unfortunately, I just... It's so hard to talk about this. All of the boys were nude at the time that they were found. Some of the clothes had been twisted around sticks and shoved down into the creek in an effort to hide them. And two pairs of the boys' underwear were never recovered. Mm. The boys had cuts, lacerations, and scratches on their bodies. Mike seemed to have sustained the most, or excuse me, the least amount of injuries while Chris suffered the most. It appeared as if he had been castrated a claim that would later be called into question down the road during trials and appeals. It was also thought that the boys were sexually assaulted, but it was the initial thought that Chris had been castrated that led investigators to eventually suspect that this crime was perpetrated by members of a satanic cult. Welcome to the 90s. Satanic (laughs) cults everywhere. They abound. Torella, tell us all about it. Let's talk about some satanic panic. Also, I um, feel like I need to pray for you specifically. Why? I mean, look at you. <gasps> well, I you would definitely be in a satanic cult in the 90s. Whoa! According Whoa. to people around you, they would look at you and be like, satanic cult, get away from her. Get away from her! Right. Get I away mean, from her! All it took is black eyeliner black nail and black polish. clothes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, I was just like, oh my gosh. But anyway. Okay, so starting in the 1980s and continuing to this day, satanic panic is a moral panic throughout the U.S. and the world, consisting over, of over 12,000 unsubstantiated cases, unsubstantiated, all of them, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, satanic ritual abuse. 
So while the West Memphis Three slash Robin Hood Hills case is one of the most well-known cases related to satanic panic, the case that thrust it into American consciousness was the McMartin preschool trial. This is so insane. Y'all, if you don't know about the, we should cover this, honestly. Yeah, we really should. It's astonishing. So essentially, a preschool worker in Manhattan Beach, California was accused of molesting a student. So an investigation was opened and bizarre claims began to arise from the children and parents surrounding satanic ritual abuse. They claimed that they saw witches fly at the school and they flew on hot air balloons (laughs) to like the middle of the ocean, you guys. They would fly there. And they also said they were taken into underground tunnels. There was a lot of talk about these underground tunnels. And that's how the teachers got the kids into all these different areas in which they would abuse them because of the tunnels and all this stuff. One child was asked to look at a photo light up. Photo light. Wow. It is hard today, isn't it? I don't know what's happening. Um, A photo light up. I can't say it. Why? Hmm. A photo light bright. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. A photo lineup and identify a man who molested <laughs> them. This kid picked Chuck Norris as their abuser. So, guys, we know that Chuck Norris wasn't there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The parents of the children said that... Say no, t- hang on a second. Why was Chuck Norris even in the lineup? I th- Well... Because I know there was a lot of testing done around this, too. Like, they were, I think they were trying to determine whether or not the kids were telling the truth. Yeah. I mean, based on, if you start out with witches and hot air balloons, like, come on. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I don't, I mean, but that is a good question. Yeah. Like, was it, like, Chuck Norris, Barney, and then, like, the preschool teachers? <laughs> That's, yes. Yeah. yeah. But even so, they, that kid chose Chuck, like... I know. You know. That's, yeah. The parents of the children said that satanic orgies were taking place at car washes and airports, and children were flushed down toilets through tunnels below the school to be abused. See, it's one thing, it's crazy enough as it is, but it's one thing for the kids to be like, Chuck Norris did it, there are witches everywhere, but the parents... Yeah. Yeah, the mother who brought the allegations forward initially, also claimed that the man who molested her son could fly. The thing about it is, the investigators were like, you don't say. Like, how many times does somebody come to a detective, police officer, whatever, and be like, this happened to me? Sex workers, for example. Mm -hmm. Somebody attacked me. Not possible. Don't believe you. What were you wearing? What did you say to them to make it, you know? Like, yeah. You deserve it, obviously, so why? Yeah. I was flushed down a toilet through underground tunnels. And they're like, we have to arrest the person who did this to you. That's in, that's a travesty. Like, yeah. I, I just mean, don't understand. Accusations of molestation. Yes. Do an investigation. Absolutely. Yes. That was so many, like, Asians. It really was. They performed excavations, there's another one, of the school property. And while they found older buildings that had been torn down, there there was absolutely no evidence of hidden tunnels under the school. And the the fact that they thought that there were, you know, like... I know. But the damage was done. The eyes of the nation were on the trial set to take place against the preschool owner and worker. With the New York Times saying that the case, quote, attracted national attention when the authorities speculated 
that hundreds of children might have been molested and subjected to satanic rituals. Can you imagine being the preschool owner in the world? Right? Oh my gosh. It's literally the Salem witch trials. Yes, yes. So they ended up both being acquitted. And then the mother who initially brought on the allegations was found to have been suffering from mental health issues before any of this started. But this information was withheld from the defense for over three years. And one prosecutor actually left the case in protest because of it. But in the media, the sensationalized headlines sold newspapers and ratings on TV went through the roof. Like satanic cult crimes became an almost weekly topic on shows across the country. I mean, I know for a fact, Jenny Jones did it. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Another case that I think of kind of around, you know, definitely in this like satanic panic thing is the, um, the San Antonio, do they call them the San Antonio Four? the women? Oh. Who the one guy, this woman's like sister-in-law or brother-in-law, I mean, because it was her sister's husband had like tried to make a move on her. She wasn't having it. Also, she's a lesbian. So she's like, I'm not into you. Like, whatever. Yeah. He got mad about it. And so she had watched his kids, which would be her nieces one weekend. And her girlfriend was in the house. And then they hung out with these other two people, um, other two women that they knew who were, you know, they're all gay, you know, fine. But he started a thing that says that these women in a satanic ritual molested these little girls. And of course, the girls went along with it. They're children. Like, they're listening to their father. But these women spent a very long time in prison. And none of this happened. It was literally because he was rejected. Yeah. That he sent these women to prison. Yeah. For a very long time. Years Mm -hmm. and years. I mean, it's just... And again, there have been no... No, not a single one case ever documented of a satanic ritual murder. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's never happened. It's literally, I, I mean, I can't stress it enough. The Salem witch trials, mm-hmm. like it's, people are just like, oh dear God. I mean, like what we talked about earlier. I mean, like he's wearing black eyeliner and he's he put nail polish on his mm-hmm. hands and Run away from him. Like, yeah. Ugh. I feel like um, Pirates of the Caribbean wouldn't have done well in the 90s. No. Because like Johnny Depp wore black eyeliner and, you know, and like, but when it came out, we were all like, oh my God, it's so hot. Hubba, <laughs> hubba. Wearing I know. Eyeliner. Hell yeah. yeah. Okay. So back in West Memphis, Arkansas, former airline pilot turned juvenile probation officer, Jerry Driver. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, was already doing what he could to lead the investigation towards a local teen that he suspected was a member of a satanic cult. And for reasons unknown, mm-hmm. that's not that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. There were reasons twofold. Well, yeah, yeah. So Jerry had long been watching Damien Eccles and his group of friends, and he knew that Damien was involved in local satanic rituals. And how did he know that? Well, because of all the obvious reasons. Damien wore all black. Mm-hmm. Okay, so boom, Dead 50% giveaway. right there. He yeah. listened to Metallica. Ooh. Ew. I almost fainted. I That's know. scary. That is scary. One time, he saw him walking with some friends, and he was holding a staff. The staff was, to be fair, a stick he'd found while he was walking through the woods, and he was also a kid, and that's what kids do, but... <laughs> no, but Terrell, come on. 
you put all those three things together. I know. It's, you know, the stick, harmless on its own, you know? Right. Metallica, right. socially acceptable on its own. Sure. Uh, wearing black, never socially acceptable. That one I can't get on board with. But um, <laughs> when you put them all together, put it together and what have you got? A satanic cult. Exactly. That's what you got. And I don't, I don't even want to make matters worse, but Damien was known to paint his nails black. Oh, dear God. At times. Yeah. Ooh. So in May of 1992, Damien was 17 years old and he was dating a 15-year-old and they were planning on running away together because kids. One night, they broke into an abandoned trailer, but the police showed up and they tried to hide in a closet, but the officers found them and they were partially dressed. Kids being kids. Come on. I know. Damien was charged with burglary and sexual misconduct, which I kind of didn't. Oh, here comes a bad iTunes review. I don't know why they charged him with sexual misconduct if he was underage. Yeah. Like, I don't know. But I mean, the burglary, sure. Mm-hmm. I can get on board with that because he what, what they were doing was illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was later convicted of breaking and entering and second degree mis- sexual misconduct. So while in custody, Damien was sent to a mental facility for suicidal threats and statements. He was released in late June of 1992. Then he moved to Oregon with his family. He was there for a few months and he had a job. But again, he made some suicidal... Oh my. Both of us. I swear we're never going to get through this. I blame allergies. I I do too. I mean, I don't know what else to blame other than being an idiot. So (laughs) I don't want to do that. No, Um, it's allergies. It's allergies. But he made suicidal threats and had a brief stay in another mental health facility. And once he was released, he went back to Arkansas. So back in Arkansas, Jerry Driver is on Damien. Like white on rice. I mean, like what I tell my kids, get off his nuts. Like, come on. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't actually say that to them, but still. (laughs) Sometimes I want to. I'm like, would you leave him alone? But like, he... Just, he had it out for him. Absolutely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So he claimed that he talked to Damien's parents and they said that Damien threatened to kill them. Damien had also reached out to the girl he was with when he was arrested. And Jerry Driver says, well, that's a violation of your parole. So coupled with the threats that he supposedly made to his parents, he was able to send him back to a juvenile detention center where Damien served his time and was released. So basically at this point, when anything happens in town, Damien is Jerry Driver's first stop. Mm -hmm. When a girl was murdered 100 miles away with absolutely no connection to West Memphis at all whatsoever, Damien was questioned. When a piece of equipment went missing from a train that never stopped in and barely slowed down near West Memphis, Damien was questioned. Like, the, the day after the bodies were discovered, Damien was questioned by Jerry Driver. And at that point, Driver questioning Damien had become more like a game to Damien than anything. I mean, he's a teenager, you know? And he's a We've typical teenager. by this guy. Yeah. And he would just say shit to piss Jerry Driver off. Like, Damien told him a year before the murders that a cult would be forming in the area. And Driver also claimed that he was told by somebody else, not by Damien, but that Damien liked to drink blood. <laughs> The thing is, Jerry Driver did not care what the claims were. He was just like, anybody tell me anything mm -hmm. to get this kid put away for life. Exactly. Something. Yeah. Give me something. Exactly. But while he was being questioned about, questioned about the murders, he, he maintained his innocence the whole time. Yeah, he wasn't playing a game with that. No. So word begins to leak out that the boys had been sexually assaulted and rumors spread about the involvement of a cult. And of course, the media grabbed that and reported it as fact. So this case was all over the news, all across the country and the world. But the police were stuck. They didn't have anything other than Jerry Driver being like, I'm pretty sure it was Damien Eccles. <laughs> pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. So they started to talk to Damien's friends to see if they could get any more information. And again, Damien wasn't doing anything to stop the rumors. Compared to his surroundings in Arkansas, 
Damien stood out like a sore thumb. He was never going to be homecoming king. He wasn't going to be captain of the football team, you know? But this newfound kind of like celebrity, he's getting so much attention, you Mm -hmm. know? And he wasn't used to getting that. And when friends would ask him if he did it, he would neither confirm or deny it. He would just play coy. And again, this is... If you watch like the Paradise Lost series, that one, two, and three on this case, Damien doesn't do himself any favors because he is treating this like he's invincible, you know, kind of. Well, and again, we have to take his age into consideration. He's very young. He's a teenage boy. He's making comments. And also at that same time, you know, he's thinking, I didn't do anything wrong. So what are they going to do to me? You know, like he just kind of has that mentality. Absolutely. But, you know, I don't know. And he did not know. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the police asked him for blood and hair samples, which he voluntarily gave because in his mind, he's like, I'm innocent. What are they going to do with that stuff anyway? What are they going to do with any of this anyway? I didn't, I had nothing to do with it. They will figure out who did. Right. And God, was he wrong. Vicki Hutchison had only lived in West Memphis for a short time at the time of the murders, and her son Aaron was a playmate of Stevie, Mike, and Chris's. Vicki previously lived in Northwest Arkansas and basically fled to West Memphis because she had outstanding arrests, I mean, outstanding warrants for her arrest for writing bad checks. She left her employer in Fayetteville, a lawyer with the impression that she had a brain tumor and was terminally ill. So she's a liar. Yeah. I mean, because I don't think, like, She has a history of lying. Yes, she has a history of lying. Yes, absolutely. So on the day the bodies were found, Vicky was at the police department to take a polygraph test because some money had come up missing from the register where she worked, which is a pattern of behavior for Vicky at this time. So she took Aaron with her and the polygraph tech, Don Bray, struck up conversation with Aaron and Aaron told him that he knew where the missing boys were and he said at the quote playhouse. So Bray called the West Memphis PD to tell them what Aaron had said And he told, um, he was told that the bodies had been found near where Aaron had indicated. Aaron would later tell police that he witnessed the murders supposedly seeing two men or seeing men in the woods all dressed up and speaking Spanish, which translates exactly. I don't think I have to say this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Devil worshipers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No two ways about it. You can't get around that. So what are we talking about here? I know. What are we telling our children that they're like, if you see anybody who speaks another language, they're a devil worshiper? Like, yeah. My God. Especially if it's more than one person speaking together. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So even after the uh, arrests were made, Aaron was only able to identify Jesse, Miss Kelly, and couldn't pick Damien or Jason out of a photo lineup. But the only reason that he could pick Jesse out was because Jesse occasionally babysat Aaron. For Vicky. That is a contaminated photo lineup. What mm-hmm. are you doing? He already knows this person. Yeah. And who knows what they even asked him, you know? Because, like, they were out for Damien. Get him any way you can. Mm-hmm. They threw the other boys in because they, I think they needed to, you know? Like, it, it made for a stronger case. It was all three of them. Yeah. So, who knows if they even asked which of these people murdered Maybe they would just asked, like, who do you see in this photo lineup that you know? Mm-hmm. All right, well, he did it. Yeah. Like, it's just... You always wonder if they'd given him a photo lineup that didn't have any of those three in it, would he have picked... Mm-hmm. Would he have still picked somebody? 
Well, see, and that's the thing. It's like, that's what you do directly thereafter. If you put people that somebody, if somebody, isn't that what they do, right? Like, okay, here's, well, I guess if they pick the person, I don't know. Let's test that. How about any of these people? Do you see any of these people? You know, like, let's let's do multiple photo lineups mm-hmm. with completely random people. Do you see anybody in here mm-hmm. that you think did it? I mean, the fact that the satanic stuff is taken so seriously mm-hmm. based on nothing. Well, and most people, when they're shown a photo lineup, they believe that the person who did it is in the lineup and you just have to pick the right one. Yeah. It is very rare that somebody will sit in front of a photo lineup and say, I'm not sure. I don't know that I could pick anybody. They'll, well, they'll point to, to ones. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I can get the right answer. Just give me time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, so the police talked to Vicky and they told her that they could make a deal and get all of her legal troubles to go away if she agreed to wear a wire and help them catch Damien. That's the big fish. Help me catch Damien. Mm-hmm. There was also a reward of $30,000 being offered to anyone who had any information leading to the arrest of the perpetrators. So while we haven't mentioned it yet, West Memphis was a very, very, very poor area at this time. And $30,000 would be life-changing to anybody who received that money. So Vicky had been heard several times saying that she wanted that reward money. So she's not doing it because she right. actually knows. She just wants the money. Mm-hmm. So the, the plan that they came up with was Vicky was going to wear a wire. She was going to get Damien to come to her house and admit that he killed the three boys. So Vicky reached out to Jesse and asked him to introduce her to Damien. But here's the thing. Jesse and Damien weren't really even friends. They knew each other, but they didn't hang out. No, it would be weird for Jesse to walk up to Damien and be like, Hey, man, I just want to introduce you to my friend because we're friends and maybe you guys could be friends. Like, that's weird because Mm -hmm. they don't hang out. We'll get into it, but Jesse didn't have the best decision-making skills, and we'll get into why that is. But so, okay, Jesse said that Damien scared him, actually. Like, that they weren't friends, and he, he was a little uncomfortable being around Damien for some reason. But Jesse was the kind of person he always wanted to help everybody, so he agreed to introduce them. So Vicky got Damien to come to her house while she was wearing the wire, but he didn't say anything incriminating. The police said that from the, uh, the audio tapes had been completely distorted and you can't hear anything on them. But Vicky said that she listened to the tapes at the police station and that you could hear everything fine. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So next, Vicky claimed that two weeks after the murder, she, Damien, and Jesse went to, I'm going to say SBAT. Mm-hmm. And Damien drove them there. So an SBAT is a coven meeting at a time other than one of the Sabbaths within Wicca and other Wicca-influenced forms of contemporary paganism. Oh, that's a mouthful. Yes, it is. Those words mean nothing to me. I don't know what they mean. All I know is that it's a coven meeting that's um, at some other time other than some other thing. I don't know. Yeah. So that statement, along with the statement from William Jones, who claimed that he heard a drunk Damien say that he raped and killed the boys was enough for authorities to be like, we got our guy. So they brought Jesse Miss Kelly in for questioning. And here's the reason why I brought up about Jesse Miss Kelly earlier. So when Jesse was four, his mother abandoned his family. She left his dad to raise him and his brother. Jesse's brother was had a very severe mental disability 
and he was eventually institutionalized. And Jesse himself was diagnosed with a mental disability. And at the time, he had a measured IQ of 72 with doctors recommending family counseling and that Jesse be placed in special education classes, but neither of those happened. So mentally, doctors said that Jesse was operating at a five to eight-year-old range. Mm -hmm. That's not fair. No. To treat him like an adult. Right. Bring him in for questioning when he is incapable of understanding what is happening. Yeah. It's so very frustrating too, because we still have such a long way to go with false confessions. I mean, my God, the, um, why can't I think of their names? Steven. Avery and Brendan Dassey. Yeah. Brendan Dassey. Yeah. Who also has an intellectual disability. Absolutely. Like it's not only possible, it's probable. Mm -hmm. It's probable. But at this time in my life, if I was eight years old and somebody said, this guy said he did it, I'd be like, well, yeah, then he did it. Like for a very long time, I believed that. I, mm-hmm. I did not understand how this works. There was no way for you to know. <laughs> yeah. But like, we just need better education about that because the general consensus in at least America is that the police won't, even with as popular as true crime is, that the police aren't going to arrest somebody who didn't at least do something wrong and that they're not going to convict somebody who didn't do what they are convicted of. Right. That it won't happen. Yeah. And if you if you say that you did it, that's it. We mm-hmm. don't even we don't even need evidence because you said it. And I you I used to think that way. I remember being in like high school and hearing something about somebody being like, well, this guy confessed, but they don't have enough evidence. I was like, what do they need evidence for? He said he did it. Mm-hmm. You know, like. It's like, if the evidence, if the evidence doesn't match the confession, y'all, we got a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So on June 3rd, acting from a tip or on the tip from Vicky about the SBAP, police picked up Jesse for questioning at 9.30 a.m. The officer told Jesse's dad that they wanted to talk to Jesse about Damien. And if he helped out, they would get $30,000. Yeah. Reward money. Reward. And his dad was okay with that, Mm -hmm. you know? And and again, his dad also didn't, you know, you or I would say, you're not questioning my child without me there. And also we'll have a lawyer present. Absolutely. Not everybody knows to do that. Mm -mm. And Jesse wanted to help his family get this money. And his dad thought, again, you didn't do anything wrong. What would it hurt? If we get this money, that's incredible. That's life-changing. Yep. Oh, it's awful. That's what they were doing. They were taking advantage of that. Yes. Yeah. Waving the shiny thing in front of them and be like, come, come talk to us, yep. you know, like, and just pouncing on, they had, Jesse had no idea. His dad had no idea. So yeah. they questioned Jesse, but they did not read him his Miranda rights. Even though according to Arkansas law, his father was supposed to waive his Miranda rights in writing before he could be questioned. Mm-hmm. They asked Jesse about the SBAT in Terrell, Arkansas, which Jesse denied attending. He said that he had never even been to Terrell before. The police thought Jesse was lying because they didn't get the right answer that they wanted. So they asked if he would take a polygraph test and Jesse agreed, but Jesse didn't even know what a polygraph was. So officers went to talk to his dad to get permission and Jesse still hadn't been, at this point, still has not been read his Miranda rights. When they went to talk to Jesse's dad, they didn't mention his rights or anything. They just kept bringing up the reward money that they could get if he helped him. And they agreed to Jesse taking a polygraph. Mm -hmm. At noon, Jesse was given the polygraph and he uh, was asked 10 yes or no questions, generic questions about the murders. 
One question was if Jesse had used drugs before, which he said no. And after the test, the officer told him that he was lying his ass off. And Jesse was like, okay, yes, I, I have used drugs before. I was lying about that. But the officer was like, no, 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 no. You're lying about the murders. And he knew it because, quote, Jesse's brain was telling him so. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Not the magic school bus, man. You can't just fly up in there and ask his brain questions. No, you cannot. And <sighs> poor Jesse. I know. So the thing is, and I think it's it's so important to remember, though, that Jesse has this mental disability. Yeah. So he he's more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't make the choices that you that a lot of other people would. Well, and even if he had been read his rights, first mm-hmm. of all, let's just take somebody in an average intelligence. When you're that age, if a police officer reads your Miranda rights to you, that does not flag you unless an adult has told you anytime the police stop you to talk to you or question you, you tell them you want a lawyer present. Mm-hmm. You, even if they'd read I didn't him learn his that rights. Until I was- 30, exactly. So even if they'd read him his rights, it would not have mattered because he would not have understood them. And most of us don't actually understand those rights. And they're called rights for a reason. Uh-huh. <laughs> just jot that down. It's just so frustrating because they're like, well, I told him his rights. Like, Santoya Brown. Well, I read her her rights and I asked her, do you understand this? And she said, yes. She was 15 She was years 15 old. years old. Jesse did not understand that the lawyers aren't the same as the police, that they don't work together. Like his lawyer- didn't even know what a lawyer was. No, his lawyer had to explain to him. And this was at the trial. By the time he gets to the trial, his lawyer was like, hold on. And he sits Jesse down and talks to him. And Jesse was like, I thought I had to tell you what you wanted. Like, because he started noticing that like Jesse would tell me that he didn't do it. He'd tell the, but then he'd get in front of the police and say, I did it. And then he'd tell me he didn't do it. And then he'd get in front of the police and say, I did it. And he thought they, that like, he didn't understand that his lawyer worked for him. Mm-hmm. And he didn't understand that you can say what actually happened. You're not going to get in trouble if you tell me the truth. But with the police, he understood, I'm in trouble if I don't tell them what they want to hear. So he would tell them what they wanted to hear. And then he would tell him something different. And he's like, we got to figure out why. Why are you telling different stories? And because he didn't understand. Mm -hmm. He didn't understand what a lawyer was. Absolutely. Oh, it's so sad. It's so sad. sad. So the thing is, I mean, he's been, he's just been told by a police officer, someone who he was raised to respect and trust that he was lying. Mm -hmm. Plus he had his dad talking to him about the reward money. So he was feeling pressure. I mean, enormous amounts of pressure. Mm -hmm. So Jesse was next questioned about the murders for two more hours, and he denied having anything to do with them at all, anything to do with them. But he asked to talk to his father, and they told him no. And he's 17 years old. He's being held for questioning and not allowed to talk to his parents because the police knew that they could get away with it. No, yeah. So Detective Gary Gitchell pressured Jesse more and more and eventually asked, or eventually Gitchell pulled out pictures of the mutilated boys and that scared Jesse. Oh my god! Then Gitchell pulled out an audio recorder and played a section of their interview with Vicky's son's, uh, Vicky's son, Aaron. And it was just a little bit, a little piece of it, but they didn't tell Jesse it was Aaron. And all he heard was a child's voice saying, quote, nobody knows what happened, but me while looking at the pictures. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Next, Gitchell pulled out 
a paper and drew a circle on it. He put three dots in the middle and outside he drew several dots. And he said that the dots on the inside were Jesse, Damien, and Jason Baldwin. The dots on the outside were the police and everyone else. And he was like, well, Jesse, which side do you want to be on? Do you want to be inside with Damien and Jason or do you want to be outside with the the police? Mm -hmm. And this is the point where Jesse broke and he was like, I want, I want out. I want to go home. Mm -hmm. And in his mind, the only way to do that was to tell them what they wanted to hear. So the police told him if he helped, he could go home. Exactly what happened with Brendan Dassey. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the next few hours were spent rehearsing what happened. They fed him details in the form of questions. Where did we hear that before? Mm-hmm. The confession killer. This is so frustrating because uh-huh. first of all, it's documented that Jesse Miss Kelly couldn't have been at the scene of the murders. He was at a right. like wrestling tournament or whatever. And Jesse gave multiple different times. Yes. Initially, when he asks them what time they killed the boys, he's like, it was noon. They're like, are you sure it was noon? He's like, 2.30. Are you sure it's 2.30? Well, they're like, "Um, I don't know if that could be possible because the boys were in school then. So could it have been closer to maybe maybe five or six, you think? And then he's like, "Uh, uh, yeah, sure, five or six. And they're like, well, okay, but was it five or six or was it seven or eight? Okay, you're right. It was seven or eight. Well, why didn't you just tell us that, Jesse? Yeah. They're like, perfect. That clears everything up. We got what we wanted. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that made, so it was seven or eight. I don't know why you wouldn't have just told me that from the beginning. Why you give us all this other shit? And yeah, he's like, why sorry. Give us the yeah. But it's like, you're, you're obviously. Uh... Yep. So he broke down and he said that he saw Jamie, or Damien, Jason and Damien murder the boys. And he inadvertently told them too much and made himself an accomplice when he said that Michael Moore broke loose and he ran and Jesse went to catch him. Mm -hmm. So all of this happens and the thing, Jesse didn't get to go home. He was taken to a cell. Over 12 hours worth of interrogation and only a total of 43 minutes were recorded. Wow. Mm -hmm. Can we say inadmissible in court? Why, why, why? Right. So immediately following the confession, when Jason, uh, when Jesse was taken to the cell, he realized he wasn't going home. And he was like, no, this, that never happened. He recanted everything. Mm-hmm. But the damage had been done. The wheels were already in motion. And Damien and Jason were immediately arrested. And Jason literally got lumped into this just because he was friends with Damien. Mm-hmm. They were very good friends. And so it's like, well, do you really think that he wasn't a devil worshiper if he was friends with Damien? Oh, had to be, had to be. I'm sure yeah. he had some black clothing. I mean, my God. At the very least, yeah. A t-shirt or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And, you know, the police were just like, well, I mean, who all else did you see out there? Was there anybody else out there? He's like, uh, Damien hangs out with Jason. They're like, Jason, that's the one. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, just absolutely ridiculous. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So the goal of the prosecution in these trials is to get Damien in prison for these murders. Jesse was given his own trial because under the Bruton rule, his confession can't be used against Damien and Jason who were tried together. So prosecutors offered Jesse a deal if he would testify against the other two, which he shot down, and he said, no, I'm innocent, I'm not doing this. So his trial was first. He was appointed an attorney by the courts, and his attorney said that coming into the case, he initially thought Jesse was guilty because there was a confession, and he thought his job was just going to be to make the best deal he could for his client. But, like, you know, like we said before, when he starts talking to Jesse, he's like, okay, something's wrong. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't know what a lawyer was. He had to explain to him that I'm not a cop. I'm here to help you, you know, and, and mm-hmm. Jesse just didn't understand that. And, you know, it's very obvious that there's just no way that Jesse understood any of the Miranda rights that were read to him when they were eventually read to him. I mean, they weren't, they weren't read to him in the proper amount of time anyway, but again, the whole point of reading somebody their Miranda rights is so that they understand what their rights are in this situation. Mm-hmm. So you can read something to somebody all day long, but it doesn't mean they're comprehending it. And if they aren't understanding it, then you better go back to the drawing board and help them figure it out. Yeah, that they can't make a decision based on that information. <laughs> they're useless if no one understands them. Exactly. And his lawyer also told a story about Jesse asking him who Satin was. And his lawyer was confused until he realized that what he meant was Satan. And he's like, here's this person on trial for murder as part of a satanic cult. And he doesn't even know who Satan is. I mean, come on. This is so unfair. It makes me so mad. And it proceeded. Mm-hmm. And he's convinced. I just. Anyway. During the trial, when Gitchell was on the stand, Jesse's lawyer asked him if it ever occurred to him that what Jesse was saying was false. Fuck Gitchell. Oh, gosh. And Gitchell's like, no, 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 no. He just got confused. That's all it is. There's there's nothing there. There were several witnesses called for Jesse's defense, and many focused on that night having been one where several people went to a local wrestling event that was held in a different county. The prosecution brought up witnesses who said that the wrestling event was on a different night. And the date of the wrestling event was never confirmed. The prosecution had also planned to call up William Jones, who had earlier claimed to hear Damien drunkenly admit to the murders, but hours before he was set to testify, he recanted, saying that he lied about everything. Vicki Hutchison testified under oath to everything that she told investigators. After both trials were over, though, she admitted that she lied completely. She said that on the night of the SBAT, she was so drunk that the next day she woke up in her front yard and had no recollection of what happened and could have dreamed the whole thing. I also think that her saying, I could have dreamed the whole thing, is kind of a cop-out. Mm-hmm. She's not taking the amount of responsibility that she For needs lying. to about what she did. Yeah. 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 The testimonies on Jesse's behalf fell on deaf ears. Jesse was found guilty and sentenced to life plus 40 years in prison. Three weeks after Jesse's trial, Damien and Jason went on trial. Days before the trial, though, Jason Baldwin was offered a deal. If he testified against Damien, he would only serve 20 years. He refused, proclaiming his innocence. 
Then hours before, he was offered a deal that would give him 10 years. And again, he declined, saying that he and Damien were both innocent and they believed in the justice system. Mm -hmm. The prosecution, though, called experts to testify on everything from the condition of the bodies to the occult. Now, the person that they called who was their, quote, occult expert was found by the lawyers because they actually asked these questions. Why the courts don't ask these questions for to certify experts, I don't understand. But this guy did a mail-in course on studies of the occult. And it was like, you know, the equivalent of some like online course that you could take anywhere. It's not from an accredited institution. You know, it's just like I read some books on it. Here I am. Yeah, Yeah, and that's all it takes to be an an expert. He literally testified that black fingernail polish is a sign of somebody in a satanic cult. I mean, I've listened to Metallica before. I'm an expert. Yep, exactly. Like, it just, the state of experts allowed to testify in court is something that should terrify you and keep you awake at night. Because let me tell you, if you ever get arrested, for something that you did not do, and the state who has so much money available pays somebody. And they have everybody in their pockets. Uh-huh. Come on. Who read one book on the subject and you have not, which therefore makes them an expert, says yep. that you did it. The blood spatter says so. I'm a photographer on the weekends, but once a month I come testify as a blood spatter expert and mm-hmm. I say you did it, your ass is going to jail. Mm-hmm. We do not have a good system for expert witness testimony in this country. It is very scary. Yeah. 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 So, of course, you know, these people testified that, yes, they did do it. And, you know, this was a satanic ritual and the whole thing. They said that Damien had knowledge of the crime scene that only the killer would know. And the defense said that he knew things because during the interview by Jerry Driver, the day after the bodies were discovered, Driver told him several things about the crime scene and everything else he saw on TV and information was leaked. Like these children, I mean, Damien might've been 18 by this point. I honestly can't remember now, but these are children. Yeah. And they were fed the information by the police. Mm -hmm. Like Michael Carson was called as a witness. He claimed that Jason Baldwin had confessed to him that he did kill the boys when they were in a juvenile detention center together. If there's one person who did not kill children, it's Jason Baldwin. Mm-hmm. I mean, sweet as pie he is and was. He said that Jason told him that he, quote, dismembered the kid and sucked the, sucked the blood out of his penis and scrotum and put his balls in his mouth. No, he didn't. Here's the thing, though. Carson, by his own admission, was on several powerful drugs at the time, and he was also huffing gas. He was facing years in federal prison for residential burglary, and suddenly the prosecution comes to him and he gets a way out. But he also later recanted his claims. John Fogelman, the prosecuting attorney, also had another card up his sleeve. There was a lake behind the mobile home that Jason Baldwin lived in. Fogelman had been given a tip by an informant about a knife that was in the lake. It was a hunting knife with a serrated portion, which experts testified would have or could have caused some of the lacerations on the boys' bodies. Again, this is another thing that I thought was a hard and fast science. Mm -hmm. That is not. Forensic scientists cannot look at a weapon and say, this matches the wounds exactly. It could produce those wounds, it's if consistent it's with. It's consistent with, 
if we get that knife and we test it and it has these three boys' blood on it, we can pretty reasonably conclude that this is the murder weapon or was used in the murder. But other than that, we don't got jack fucking shit. Mm-hmm. But we can say it's consistent with, and a jury hears that and says they found the murder weapon and it was in his possession. Absolutely. You guys, like, it's just so, it's so scary. So Fogelman sent it to, like, sent a diver in to retrieve the knife and it was presented as the weapon used in the crime. So you would think that, you know, in this case, you're going to call the informant at trial and get them to connect the knife to the murders and the murderers, right? Well, no, because the informant was Jason Baldwin's mother. And she had mentioned a knife that Jason had at one point that she had thrown into the lake one year before the boys were murdered. And it was still in that same damn lake Yeah, when they went to retrieve it. It wasn't like Jason Jason went in and got it and murdered these boys. And Fogelman knew that the knife had nothing to do with the crime. And witnesses questioned about if it was used, spoke in a way to never really say it was used in the crime, just that the injuries on the boys could be caused by such a knife. Just one kind of like it, probably, maybe. Yep. Could be. In Arkansas, the crime lab wasn't an independent authority looking over cases. They're an arm of the prosecution. And honestly, I mean, it feels like it's that way everywhere. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that's specific just to Arkansas. Yeah, they're not. The lab is run by the state. Yeah, yeah, they're. And that's why they should get independent or other states to perform. Yeah. Yeah. Send it off to somewhere else. So essentially, the medical examiner gets with the prosecution. The prosecution says, here's what we think happened. And then they test the stuff. This is obviously problematic. Yeah. Frank Peretti was the assistant medical examiner who testified and said that the knife caused the wounds and was used to castrate Chris Byers. Okay. Without doubt. Uh Uh-huh. What is it that he said? Indeed and without doubt. Indeed, without doubt. In Arkansas, you don't have to pass a test to work in the medical examiner's office. Peretti had tried to pass the state board twice. And after the second time he failed, he was like, actually, I'm not going to try again because of personal issues. (laughs) Don't talk about my toe. That's personal issues. personal issues. So Peretti's testimony painted a picture of these ritualistic killings. These boys have been raped, like all these things. His testimony went on and on. Photos were shown time and time again to the jurors. Meanwhile, he cannot get board certified as a medical examiner, mm-hmm. but that's his job. And we're putting people in prison for the rest of their lives yeah. with his testimony. And it's not even that he just can't, it's that he won't. <laughs> uh-huh. Both. Yeah, exactly. So after all the witnesses were called and the case was turned over to the jury, they found both Damien and Jason guilty. Jason was given life while Damien was given the death penalty as the supposed mm-hmm. ringleader. In 1994, Damien, James, and Jesse all appealed their convictions, which were upheld time and time again. Their appeals were denied. And this whole time, they've got the same judge in place, too, which is obviously mm-hmm. another problem. Like, you need that's bias. Yes, you've got a judge looking at these appeals who is, of course, going to uphold his original fucking decision. Like, It just, anyway. Yeah, because God forbid you say, maybe I was wrong. Yeah, maybe I was wrong. At one point, Damien Eccles' lawyer was speaking with the West Memphis Police Department and asking about the evidence in the case. And he was told it had been lost or it was either lost or burned in a fire that had taken place. So 
Like everywhere they go, there's just roadblock after roadblock. Um, When they were examining the ligatures used to tie the boys up, the police did find a single hair that was caught in one of the knots. So that was used to create a DNA profile, which did not match any of the three in prison. Who did it match, though? It matched Terry Hobbs. Stevie Branch's stepdad. The one who didn't call Pam and tell her that her son was missing and went to pick her up at work at nine o'clock and never bothered to mention like, oh, and by the way, I never found Stevie. He never came home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That one. From 2007 to 2010, lawyers did everything they could to get a new trial. By the way, Terry Hobbs has no alibi Mm-mm. at all. They had new DNA evidence that linked Terry Hobbs to the crime scene, and they had an expert who said that Frank Peretti's testimony was just flat out wrong. Vincent DeMaio is a well-known and respected medical examiner in Texas. During his testimony, Peretti actually bragged that he was on a first-name basis with DeMaio. So people trying to help the West Memphis Three get out of prison went directly to him and have him look over the evidence from the case. And he's like, okay. So these autopsies, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i be honest with you, they are very thorough. They're done in exquisite detail. It's just all of it's wrong. <sighs> like, all of it's wrong. Mm-hmm. After looking at the photos, he said that there was nothing there that he would attribute to being caused by a knife. And he said that looking at the photos, it was obvious that the wounds occurred after death. And because of the irregular nature of the wounds and the fact that there was no pattern, it was obviously animal activity. And it, what does that remind you of? Mm. Innocence files. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. The bite, bite marks. marks. Yes. Oh, my it was gosh. Turtles and crawfish. Turtles and crawfish. Yes. So it just so happens that the place where the boys' bodies were found was nicknamed Turtle City. There were literally turtles everywhere. And that particular time of the year, the turtles were mating and they were eating any and everything around them. So to illustrate the bite mark, they went to a turtle expert who let a turtle bite him so they could see what it looked like. And it looked Almost identical to the marks found on the boys' bodies. That's just a good expert. I would never let a turtle bite me willingly. Heck no, that's scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had it happen, but yeah. still. But like, initially they're saying that this was the satanic ritual. Somebody cut them this way and all this stuff. And now we're finding out that these are more than likely post-mortem wounds mm-hmm. and animal activity. Yeah. Like... And I think, I mean, obviously the the place that they were put, they were submerged in this drainage ditch. Yeah. Why on earth would you not think, this is in, it's a, a nice day, you know, like when they went missing. Yeah, it's a day. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to not believe that it could have been, I don't understand, I just, this whole thing makes me so mad. Mm-hmm. It makes me so mad. Yeah. After, they didn't, they didn't just hinge all this on DeMaio's word. They sent out everything, like after he looked at everything, they sent it out to six more independent medical examiners who all also agreed with DeMaio and said that Peretti was pretty much full of shit. Hmm. So in 2008, Judge David Burnett, who'd been the judge over the cases from the beginning, denied the request of a new trial, saying that the DNA test results were inconclusive. Surprise, surprise. Exactly. That ruling was appealed to the Arkansas Supreme Court, who set September 30th, 2010 as the date they would hear the case. In November of 2010, they ordered that a lower judge consider whether the new evidence might exonerate the three men. Then, in December of 2010, Judge Burnett was elected to the Arkansas... Arkansas... God. 
Arkansas State Senate, meaning a new judge would need to be appointed. And this is exactly what they needed. Now, here's another thing that is so fucked up about our system. And I understand that we have one of the best systems in the world, but still. When you have to have a complete change of political seats for your case to be heard by a, by a non-biased party, mm-hmm. there's a problem. Had Judge Burnett not been elected to the Senate, they might still be in prison. Absolutely. I mean, that's unacceptable. Yeah. Judge David Laser was eventually appointed and would preside over the new evidentiary hearing. So Damien hired a new defense team that included Stephen Braga and Patrick Benka. However, as the new lawyers worked to present their case at the hearing, they were shocked to find that the new evidence did not conclusively point to a different perpetrator. As was typical for this case, the evidence was only circumstantial and Braga and Benka, convinced that the West Memphis Three were innocent and deserved their freedom, decided to take a different approach. So they had a working relationship with the Arkansas Attorney General Dustin McDaniel and they met to discuss the case. And during that meeting, Benka asked McDaniel if his team would consider skipping the hearing in order to move straight to new trials. The judge, Benka argued, would certainly grant new trials after seeing this evidence. So McDaniel agreed to discuss the idea with his team. As negotiations between the lawyers continued, Benka and Braga suggested that both sides agree to an Alford plea, with time served in order to avoid the risk to both sides that a new trial would bring. An Alford plea would require the West Memphis Three to plead guilty to a series of lesser charges while at the same time stating for the record that they were innocent and only pleading guilty because it was in their best interest. Both legal teams agreed that the plea would be acceptable, provided that all three defendants were willing to cooperate. This is so frustrating because if you if you were going to take them to trial again as a prosecutor, you would try them separately. But because you believe they're guilty, then why would you agree to an Alford plea that lets them out right now? You said they needed to be serving life in prison because they murdered three little boys. Yeah, absolutely. So either they did or they didn't, and either they deserve life in prison or the death penalty, or they don't. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you're fine with this, which tells me that you have no fucking case and you don't actually think they're guilty. Oh, yeah, 100%. But I also think that it's really, really important to note, in my opinion, that thank God none of them took a deal and pleaded guilty or, you know, like that saved them in the long run, even though they spent so much time in prison because they would have never been able to make this kind of deal if they were like, yeah, okay, I'll take the plea. I'll take the whatever. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll testify against the, against him. I'll Mm -hmm. testify against him. That it couldn't have happened. Right. Exactly. Despite this hopeful new development, uh, Binga and Braga were still concerned. Jason Baldwin, by this time in his late 30s, had the most to lose by accepting this plea. Untainted by false confession as Miss Kelly was and without the threat of death row that Eccles faced, Baldwin was unsure that pleading guilty was the answer. But after considering that Eccles' execution date was quickly approaching, Baldwin agreed to the legal maneuver in order to preserve his friend's life. On August 9, 2011, Judge Laser approved the Alford plea. Each of the defendants pleaded guilty while maintaining their innocence and were released on time served. After 18 years, one of Arkansas's most controversial murder cases came to a strange, semi-permanent close. And just like that, they walked out of the courtroom and back into society. 
And despite the release of the West Memphis Three, the case remains unresolved and the legal conduct of both the prosecution and defense remain relatively unexamined. Prosecutors will not continue to investigate the murders of Stevie Branch, Chris Byers, and Michael Moore. Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin will not receive compensation for the time spent in prison, and they may never be cleared of the crimes for which they pleaded guilty. Fuck that. Yeah. So essentially, the state of Arkansas says, we put the people responsible behind bars. We're not going to look at anything else. They got out now. They did their time. Nope, 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 nope. West of Memphis, the documentary produced by Peter Jackson and his wife, Fran Walsh, goes into further detail about Terry Hobbs as a suspect. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely something to watch if you want more information. It's very, very disappointing that they're not going to continue to work this case because... there. I believe that he did it. Yeah, there is DNA evidence that he was at the crime scene, so why don't we figure the rest of it out? But... Uh, after the release, Jesse Miss Kelly has stayed out of the spotlight. Jason Baldwin has been involved in some movie production and pursues a career in law. Damian Eccles has written books about his experience in prison on death row. He is also a, an accomplished artist and has produced movies. When he was released, uh, he said that his eyesight had deteriorated to the point where he could only see about two feet in front of himself. Mm. He'd been in a confined space for so long that he had to retrain his eyes to see distances again. They still fight for justice in this case, with Damien being the de facto leader. He's on the forefront of their fight. And on December 21st, 2021, Damien tweeted, The chief of police was not truthful. He has now resigned, and we know that none of the evidence was destroyed. Remember that fire, or they just lost it? How do you not know if it was a fire or if it was lost? I, don't, I just Thank don't understand you. that all by itself. But It can now be tested to see who left DNA at the crime scene. My attorney was in the evidence room this morning and saw it with his own eyes. Every piece is still there. Hmm. So, you know, Eccles' team petitioned the courts on January 24th, 2022 to release the evidence for testing, and they are awaiting the court's decision. And this case is just a huge one. It's been covered everywhere. We've gone into, like, this episode was... I mean, we did only one episode on it, but it's kind of a long episode. There's still so much more out there. I mean, there's literally so much more. There was so much, like, for the longest time, uh, John Mark Byers, Chris Byers' stepfather was a suspect. I believe he's passed away now. Mm. But he was cleared. And at first, you know, all of the parents of these children believed, save Terry Hobbs maybe if you think he did it, believed that the West Memphis Three were guilty. And now a lot of them Specifically, Stevie's mom. Yeah, yeah. Pam is, mm-hmm. and Mark Byers too. Yes, was yes. definitely professing their innocence. Like he was all in on they didn't do this. So yeah. Well, and I'll just say this. So I, when I watched the West of Memphis documentary, when I found out that it was Peter Jackson, I was like, oh no wonder it's two and a half hours long because <laughs> Peter Jackson doesn't know how to do anything that's not ninety five million hours long. Love him. He makes a long movie, you know? Yeah. But then I watched it and I was like, dear God, it couldn't have been shorter. No, it couldn't. Yeah. And honestly, there's still so much more that it could have been, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's just a crazy case. Yeah. But that's it. Ugh. I hate this case for so many reasons. And hate meaning I can't stand it. Like, it pisses me off. There's no resolution. It's such a disaster. It's so awful. Mm-hmm. It it's is. just so awful. It really is. I mean, it's just a train wreck. Yeah, but we won't keep you for longer than we need to, so we're going to we're going to go ahead and hop off here, but 
Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.